Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 123 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thanks for joining us. She was a privileged baby boomer who grew up on a horse farm in segregated Virginia. And by her 21st birthday, she had worked for peace in communist Europe, traveled the country in the cause of racial justice, marched for voting rights in Selma, Alabama, and was a student organizer at Bryn Mawr College. We are talking here about the distinguished historian of the 19th century South and the former president of Harvard University, Drew Gilpin Faust. She's the author of a brand new memoir titled Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century. And she is our guest today on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. For Drew Gilpin Faust, Growing up in the South, which was defined by its racial segregation, and in her case, its subordination of women, proved intolerable and galvanizing. But during the 1960s, through her love of learning and her active engagement in the civil rights, students, and anti-war movements, Drew forged a path of her own, one that would eventually lead her to become a historian of the very conflicts that were instrumental in shaping the world she grew up in. This is a coming-of-age story written by one of our finest American historians and leaders in the field of higher education. Drew Gilpin Faust will be with us momentarily, but first, let's take care of some business. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net and check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep this thing going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, and that includes this bi-monthly podcast, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, our blog, The Arena, and our narrative podcast, now on hiatus, on the history of evangelicals and politics. Head over to currentpub.com and click the red membership button. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. You can follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at John Fia one or you can follow us at current underscore pub one we are also on facebook instagram and threads and if you like an episode give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on apple podcasts iHeartRadio, stitcher podbean spotify or wherever you get your podcasts those reviews go a long way towards helping us reach and expand our audience Drew Gilpin Faust is president emerita of Harvard University and the Arthur Kingsley Porter University professor. She previously served as founding dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. And before coming to Radcliffe, she was the Annenberg Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of six books, including most recently, This Republic of Suffering, Death, and the American Civil War that was published in 2008. This book chronicles the impact of the Civil War's enormous death toll on the lives of 19th century Americans. It was awarded the 2009 Bancroft Prize, the New York Historical Society's 2009 American History Book Prize, and was recognized by the New York Times as one of the 10 best books of 2008. This Republic of Suffering is the basis of a 2012 Emmy-nominated episode of the PBS American Experience documentaries titled Death and the Civil War, directed by Rick Burns. Faust is also a contributing writer at The Atlantic. Her honors include awards in 1982 and 1996 for distinguished teaching at the University of Pennsylvania, 
She was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1994, the Society of American Historians in 1993, and the American Philosophical Society in 2004. In September of 2018, she was awarded the John W. Klug Prize for Achievement in the Study of Humanity by the Library of Congress. She received her bachelor's degree from Bryn Mawr in 1968, her master's in 1971, and doctoral degree in 1975 come from the University of Pennsylvania in American Civilization. Our guest today on the podcast is Drew Gilpin Faust. She is the author of a memoir titled Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century. Drew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. So you have had a successful career, yeah, a distinguished, award-winning historian of the 19th century South. You were president of Harvard University, but your memoir covers none of that. Uh, it is a sort of coming-of-age story. It gives us a glimpse, I think, into part of your life that those of us who just see you as a public figure maybe didn't know about. So why a memoir? What led you to write this? Tell us a little bit about that process. Well, it came out of my many years as a historian. I felt that I had for decades been listening to voices from the past. And as I got older and fewer and fewer people alive today could remember the years in which I grew up, I wanted to tell the story of those years and to speak in in a way like the subjects that I covered in the 19th century. I grew up in segregated Virginia in the 1950s and 60s at a time when my mother repeatedly told me, it's a man's world, sweetie, and the sooner you figure out, the better off you'll be. So I wanted to portray a time that is so distant from our own and remind people of the kinds of constraints and assumptions that ruled in those years and hopefully make people think we don't want to go back to anything close to a world like that. So let's develop this a little bit more. One line from the memoir that struck me, this is on page 20, you write of your childhood growing up in Clark County, Virginia, rural Virginia. You say, quote, black people were women. I must be a lady, unquote. I think that quote in many ways captures the essence of the kind of social world in which you were raised. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, it it has many dimensions to it, as as you point out. First of all, the separation between white and black in this segregated society and the notion that people were very different across that divide and that womanhood was very different across that divide because I was meant to develop social graces that would separate me, in a sense, from my biological realities. I was meant to transcend those realities with the trappings of ladyhood and gentility, whereas Black women were seen as women, as forbidden these trappings of uh, gentility that were so much meant to be a part of the identity my mother and grandmothers and those around me wanted me to develop. So when most people think about segregation in the South, they think about, and you make this point in the memoir, they think about water fountains or public accommodations. 
And you say there was little of this. My father was a grew up in New Jersey, like your mother, northern New Jersey. You know, he went is in the Marines and he, you know, he went down to Paris Island and for the first time he saw these signs and it was you know incredibly jarring for him. But again, there was little of this in the Upper South, or at least in your county. But again, you write on page 70, you say, quote, people just knew, right, of this sort of deep-seated, almost systemic kind of segregation. Prejudice was a way of life. Explain growing up with this kind of feeling of kind of white superiority. And, you know, you wrote a letter to Dwight Eisenhower complaining about the inequalities. Why did you see this at such a young age when everyone around you did not, or at least most around you did not? Well, so many elements of what you just said. The part about Upper South, I think that's part of why the signs weren't there, but it was also a very rural community. And a lot of the motivation for segregation was from places for signs of, you know, sharp delineations. These were erected in public accommodations and public places. And there weren't that many of them in my rural county. It was a community in which people knew each other face to face and they learned at a very early age what the rules of the road were, so to speak, what the rules of social interaction were. And so I learned that from the time I was very small. I learned, for example, that the bathroom in our house next to the kitchen was for the African-American cook, not for me. And one time I used it and my mother didn't say that's the black bathroom. Instead, she said, don't invade their privacy. And so it was all covered with this kind of veneer of um, acceptability or gentility or invisibility of the signs and markers of, of segregation. Now, I was just as oblivious to all this as anyone else around me until in the aftermath of Brown v. Board, the decision that the Supreme Court issued in 1954 saying that schools should be integrated with all deliberate speed. In the aftermath of that Supreme Court decision, white leaders of the state of Virginia developed a plan that they called massive resistance that provided that Virginia should close its schools rather than integrate them. In other words, have no public education. And that was what they were advocating. And this caused a lot of conversation, to be sure, not to mention conflict and commentary. And I was riding home from school one day with an African-American man who worked for my family and often drove me to and from school. And I heard about this controversy on the radio. And suddenly, I realized that my school was all white not by chance, but by design. Now, there was no sign on the school that said the white school or white students only, but that's how it operated. That's how everyone understood how it operated. And in fact, it operated that way by law. Schools were segregated by law. But I had never recognized any of this until suddenly this conversation on the radio in the aftermath of Brown v. Board made me realize that this was a whole system of studied and self-conscious oppression and and inequality. And that seemed to me just unimaginable. I'd been taught all these virtuous things in Sunday school about how Christ loves everybody. I came from a typical Christian family in the South, in the white South. I also had been taught in school about the Declaration of Independence and all men are created equal. And suddenly I realized there are all these invisible structures of inequality making separate societies that I had not 
recognized before. And I was just outraged. I felt someone had told me lies or had misrepresented the world to me. So I went home and I wrote an irate letter to President Eisenhower saying, how can this be the case? And please support integration. And, you know, if I painted my face black, I couldn't go to school. That's the black people are people too. And so I sent this off at age nine to Eisenhower asking him to, uh, or charging him. I was kind of bossy in this letter, ordering him around, telling him to support the principles of integration. And for the listeners out there who are going to buy this book, hopefully you can read the entire letter. It's been printed at the beginning of the book and you also comment on it uh, during the book. Let's shift gears a little bit. You head off to boarding school, right? Concord Academy in Massachusetts. And while you're at Concord, you join, uh, was it a group with the Quake? Was it a Quaker uh, organization? It was a Quaker group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For a trip behind the so-called Iron Curtain, right? Into communist Europe. That experience changed you in profound ways. You write, quote, learning and examining suffused with a sense of purpose. This, I recognized, was how I hoped to live the rest of my life. I had spent nine weeks in an atmosphere I hadn't known existed. So tell us how you get involved in this organization, this trip, and why was it such an important moment in your life? This trip grew out of an experience I had in the fall of my junior year at Mm -hmm. Concord when the Cuban Missile Crisis erupted. And we thought we were going to be blown off the face of the earth. And I remember one night getting together with a bunch of my friends in an empty classroom, and we all talked about what was it in life that we would have missed that we most had hoped for if we all blew up. And it sounds in some ways like extravagant thinking on the part of young women, except that looking back now with what we know about the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was all too real. And we came within a hair's breadth of of some kind of nuclear conflagration. So we weren't all that unrealistic in our fears. And this instilled in me a sense that the world was a very perilous place. And so when I came across a flyer in a big pile of, of materials about summer opportunities for students, when I came across a flyer describing a Quaker-supported trip to travel to Eastern Europe as a kind of hands across the Iron Curtain gesture where we would meet with our equivalents on the other side of the Iron Curtain, students and young people, and talk about how we could build a world of peace instead of the world of war that we were going to inherit from our parents. I thought that was just a great idea and that it was something that I could participate in that might make a difference in the world by making it less likely to succumb to a nuclear conflagration. So I went off on this trip in the summer of 1963, and it was the first time I had ever been in an interracial group. I had never been in circumstances with um, African-Americans of community and equality. And these were pretty impressive young people. One of them had just finished integrating the schools in Atlanta. They were very accomplished. And It was a wonderful group. And off we went talking to people about in East Germany, in Czechoslovakia, in Yugoslavia, being in work camps with them, going to dances with them where they were so envious of our blue jeans and our rock and roll, Mm -hmm. just feeling that we were all human beings. We were all young people together. And it was a time of inquiry and 
learning and arguing and agreeing and disagreeing and learning from each other that was so stimulating. And I just thought to reach across differences, to reach across the world, to make a move for peace and and harmony around the world and to be with such interesting and stimulating people, what extraordinary privilege that was. And could I live my life in such circumstances? So that's kind of the quote you, you read. Let me play off a little bit the Quaker aspect of this. And I'm not sure how many people have asked you this question, but I do sense it's not a major thread, but I do sense a kind of, for lack of a better term, let's call it a religious thread that runs through this book and that connects often with your activism. You had this experience with the Quakers, the peace witness, the peace tradition of the Quakers. I think you mention being very attractive to the the phrase you use is the Christian ethics of Martin Luther King. Talk about the way in which, you know, I think you make it very clear that you weren't really interested in the particulars of theology and, you know, these kinds of things. But clearly these kinds of these kinds of religious movements that informed so much, as you know, of a lot of the social reform movements in American history, generally, you were drawn to, you were attracted to. Talk a little bit about that, um, you know, how these movements influenced you. Well, I've never been um, an observant Quaker. I've never belonged yeah. to a Quaker meeting, but certainly their perspectives and commitments have influenced me from the time I went on that trip in 1963 up to the present. And yeah. the fundamental tenet of of their practice and worship is that of peace, that of brotherhood and sisterhood, that of thinking of others as having the same spirit internally of humanness as oneself. And all of that was very much a guiding force for me as I participated in the civil rights movement and was very drawn to the nonviolent philosophy of Martin Luther King when I became an anti-war activist in my college years protesting the Vietnam War, it was a protest against war as well as against the Vietnam War. And when the movement against the war divided into the more violent opponents, the weather underground and so forth, and those who did not take that path, I was very much on the side of those who did not move towards violence. So my social activism was very much a product, I think, of the interactions I had with Quakers in that trip to Eastern Europe, but translated into different contexts with the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And I will say that my daughter, who's now in her 40s, she went to, let's see, 14 years of Quaker school. So (laughs) that was a a later embodiment of my commitment and um, respect for the Quakers. Now, you you talk about, you know, the way reading has sort of transformed your life. Did you read things or was this was this just experience? Were you reading Quaker writers? Were you reading, you know, King and kind of nonviolent resistance stuff about the beloved community? What books did you have on alongside your your nightstand or whatever during? Do you remember? Well, lots of books. I mean, the King kind of corpus, why we can't wait. Letter from Birmingham Jail, of course, his writing, Stride Towards Freedom, his book about Montgomery, all of those books I read as a teenager. I was also very much influenced by Albert Camus, who was not a Quaker, but nevertheless, 
a moral force within the movement and among many who were Quakers. I discovered in the course of writing this book how many people who were active in the movement, and many of them are kind of half generation, not a half generation, or half decade or so older than I, mm-hmm. would cite Camus and talk about the influence of his notions of commitment and moral urgency. So that was another writer that was very important in my development of my social consciousness. Yeah, I want to come back to a paper you wrote on Camus a little bit later here in the interview. But again, we're moving quickly through your story. I encourage listeners to get out there and get a copy of this book. I'm skipping over massive amounts of the of the memoir just for the sake of fitting this all in. But, you know, the memoir concludes, I think you're age 21. It's 1968. You know, you don't come right out and say this, but it's obviously clear that this is a kind of also an end of an era in sort of 1960s activism, if you will. And you mentioned this earlier, but, you know, I get the impression and tell me if I'm wrong that you are. And I think you've already mentioned this, that you're dissatisfied with certain changes taking place in both the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam movement, which so occupied much of your time as a college student, you know, so you're writing this paper, undergraduate paper about, I love this, about the threat to liberalism on college campuses. And you're, you're writing about the great social movements of the 1960s veering in quote directions. I could not follow unquote what happened and how did you change? How did the culture change? You know, some people say, well, I didn't change, you know, everything else changed elaborate on this shift because it does seem like the end of something in that last chapter, not only in your life, but in the culture as well. Well, the second to last chapter is called, this is the end. So yeah, yeah. that's right. right. That's right. Yeah. And the end of my college days and the entry into the real world, but more profoundly in response to what you're asking, it was a time when, first of all, the civil rights movement had fragmented and essentially in the aftermath of Selma. After Selma in 1965, which I attended as as a freshman in college, the emergence of Black power was seizing power away from Martin Luther King. John Lewis was thrown out as the head of SNCC because he was seen as too tied to nonviolence and the notion of the beloved community. And the idea that Blacks had to be much more assertive in defense of their own rights and had to do it or in pursuit as well as defense of their own rights. And they had to do it themselves rather than in partnership with white Americans. That left many white Americans who'd been in the movement a little bit uncertain about what role, if any, they could play. And for those of us who were committed to nonviolence, that also underscored um, the marginalization of the nonviolent philosophy. Of course, in the spring of 1968, King is assassinated, and that is the end of Martin Luther King's leadership, even though he had been weakening in terms of his authority and centrality to the movement. So the civil rights movement is fragmenting. And at the same time, the frustrations of students who had been protesting the war in Vietnam frustration that they were making little progress in spite of what they saw as their victories, that again shattered the anti-war movement. 
there was no anti-war candidate in the 1968 election, even though students had been so successful in pushing McCarthy forward. Then many embraced Bobby Kennedy, and he too was assassinated in June of 1968. And you have the uproar and the violence at the Democratic National Convention in the summer of 1968, I think marking this fragmentation of student voices, as well as the move towards violence that was taking over much of the movement for social reform. I was not ever a violent person. I didn't go that way. I wasn't comfortable with it. I didn't believe in it. And so that left me alienated from that wing of the anti-war movement. And I had already moved somewhat into other activities supporting children in Vietnam and other kinds of anti-war activities that were not in the realm of confrontation or, or violent protest. So I was going to ask you, Carter, where do you go after after 1968? I mean, I, obviously, you go to graduate school. You talk about that in the book, but you take some time off, I think, before you go to graduate school. But where does somebody, you know, where do you find, where does your activism move at that point? Or do you curb it a little bit because you're involved in other things? Or what happens to the group that the, the sort of nonviolent group? especially among white men and women, you know, where did you go? Where did you sort of intellectually, uh, in terms of your activism? So when I graduated from college, I had to ask myself, what kind of life do you want to lead? What do you want to do when you grow up? How are you going to support yourself? All those kinds of questions. And one of the issues that had been of concern to me throughout college, and in some ways was a central concern of the student movement, in the earlier period of the 60s, and that is universities and the role of universities in society and how universities might be forces for social improvement, social betterment, social change. Mm -hmm. And that really is where I ended up after working for a couple of years and thinking through what is it that I could best offer and how could I best serve these, these large goals that had inspired me throughout all these years of, of my student life. Yeah. And so I decided that I wanted to write about these problems. I wanted to write about race. I wanted to write about racism. I wanted to write about how people get up in the morning and justify doing unthinkable things. Yeah. And so I ended up writing about white slave owners and the ideologies that enabled them to justify their relationship to slavery. A question that I believe sets up a framework for considering how do we today justify our own relationships to injustice? How does any people or person justify a world in which they are taking advantage of others? So a yeah. lot of my engagement then took the form of being a historian and writing history and also becoming an increasingly active part of a, of a university. And I guess you could say that the pinnacle of that was becoming mm -hmm. president of Harvard and thinking yeah. about what universities should be from, from that perspective. Yeah. One of the things I like to do on the podcast is I like to connect the sort of ideas that some of our guests over the years have, have brought up. Some of you may remember a while ago, I'm talking to the listeners here, Jill Ogling Titus says we had on talking about the Brown v. Board decision in Virginia. I believe you even cite her book. So go back and listen to that episode to get some context for this conversation, but also the context of education in the 1960s and into the 1970s. Some of you may want to go back and listen to the episode with Ellen Schrecker 
who wrote a, a really interesting book on all of that. So make those intellectual connections with some of our other guests. Drew, I want to end here with a couple questions about your work as a historian. And you've already kind of answered this one, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit more. So you write about your decision and you mentioned this to, I think you, you said it's your freshman year at Bryn Mawr. You and your boyfriend drive to Selma. You join the 1965 March for Voting Rights. And this means you have to rush a paper on Camus that you're mm-hmm. writing in an English class. And I, I can't remember, you got somebody to type it for you or submit it for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the professor hands the paper back. He's sympathetic, the professor, to, to you going to Selma, but, you know, kind of says this needs a lot more work. <laughs> this paper covered with... That's a very paint. gentle way to yeah, describe I know, just, what he said. Yeah, I'm talking to the former <laughs> president of Harvard here, so I'm trying to be polite, right? But yeah, so a lot of red ink. There's even some chastisement, right, on the part of the professor. You say, I love this line, you receive this chastisement with a certain satisfaction. As I read that story, I thought about, you know, your future career you know, on one level, you pride yourself on being a kind of intellectual, a writer, somebody who, maybe detached is not the best word here, but someone who who focuses on scholarly pursuits, right? Writing papers. And then you have the activist who's down in Selma. And in some ways, the rest of your career, as you just mentioned, right, was the writing the paper side, not the marching <laughs> right side. And and this reminds me of all of this debate in the last couple of years about sort of activists and historians. How much should you, you know, be detached uh, in your writing? How much of scholarship should be promoting some kind of overt activism? Where do you come down on this whole question of the historian activist? Because you've you've been both. I mean, I never I didn't know about the activism part, but now I know you've been both. How do you fall on this? You know, how do you advise a kind of young graduate student with all of the passions that you had as a young person? And then, then you say, well, you need to write articles that will be accepted in the Journal of American History or something like that, which are kind of these detached pieces. Uh, any thoughts on that? I don't think there should be a contradiction between yeah. excellent scholarship and having an impact in the world. In fact, I think if you lower yourself to less than excellent scholarship in order to make a point, in order to have an impact in the world, you only weaken your case. And so I would argue for the absolute highest standards of rigor, of proof, of depth of research, of argument. I'd like um, my arguments to stand up to questioning from people who disagree with them. Because I think that's the way that ideas do have their largest impact and exert their greatest force, not by distorting or leaving out or bending your approach in any way to advance an argument that you cannot make under the most rigorous of standards. So I don't really see a contradiction there. I mean, I'm not telling students. Okay, stop writing your term paper and go off and go to Selma. If they wanted to decide to do that, that would be their decision. And it would perhaps be an extremely important one for them to make. But where my bailiwick 
extended was what they did in their scholarly work. And they could combine it certainly with activism of all sorts if their scholarly work remained at the, the very highest quality. What do you think, though, about the actual act of scholarship that, you know, kind of whether it's preaching or sermonizing in the scholarly work, right? So when I read your work, you know, as I have through the years, I don't see a lot of sort of sermons. Clearly, there's a sort of indirect implication that, you know, here was the injustice that occurred in the South or here was what the pro-slavery arguments think. But you're not kind of saying and go do likewise fight or is it implied or, you know, how do you sort through all that? Well, one of the most important elements of what we're talking about, I believe, is what questions get asked, because there are a lot of questions that didn't get asked for generations about African-American history, for example. And in the 60s, as we began to change our views about the appropriate place for African-Americans in American life, and as Brown v. Board came down, the civil rights movement revved up. Then we began to ask very different questions about what the past had looked like and what kinds of discrimination had gone on. And we have developed over time a very different view of Woodrow Wilson. We have developed a very different view of what slavery was like. And that came from asking new questions in new contexts. So there needs to be an interchange between the world outside of scholarship and the world of scholarship, because our eyes are blinkered so often until we jolt ourselves out of it and and move the blinkers away. And it's what's around us often that is the most powerful dislodger of those blinkers. Yeah. So this kind of scholarship and the kind of questions that one asks can be, I mean, it's always political. It's always an activist kind of endeavor, Mm -hmm. just a different type than kind of marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, right? Yeah. So you are a historian. We've already kind of established that you're writing a memoir about your own life. You are putting your, so to speak, right, early life under the historian's microscope. What are the challenges involved in that? I mean, was that easy for you to do to kind of provide a kind of really solid historical analysis of your own life, you know, and the, the sort of categories that historians think think about and then sort of, you know, put them on you? growing up? I mean, what kind of issues were there? Maybe maybe there were none. Well, I very much wanted to write what I called a history memoir or a memoir history. I wanted to situate my life in the context of its time and show me as a person making choices within certain realities and structures that were set by the world in which I emerged as a child. And so I wanted to understand what were the larger, what were those larger forces? For example, I was terrified when Sputnik went up and that was a personal and individual reality. But when I read more broadly about how the nation as a whole reacted to Sputnik and the terror that gripped the Congress when they thought they'd been outpaced by the Russians. And when suddenly all the anti-communist sentiments were cast back on us as, oh my gosh, we lost here. I could see how my little personal terror was part of a much broader national reality. And that made me understand my own life better. And maybe for somebody reading the book, they will understand the national circumstance better by understanding how it refracted through one little girl's life. So I did a lot of research for this book. I think most memoirs don't have footnotes, and this one does. 
uh, citing the variety of materials that I use to expand my life beyond its own compass. And that was how the professional historian played into the to the memoir. The challenge there perhaps is that is it personal enough? Do I tell enough about my inner being or am I explaining things too much through social structures and larger realities? So what is the right balance? I'll have to leave it to your readers to see if I got it right. Yeah, yeah, that's great. We have been talking with Drew Gilpin Faust, author of Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century. It's her memoir of coming of age in rural Virginia, in Concord, Massachusetts, in Bryn Mawr, in Eastern Europe, around the country, fighting for racial justice. It's a great story. Get out there and get it. Makes a great holiday gift. Drew, thanks so much. I know you're a busy woman. Thanks so much for taking the time to spend with us on on the podcast today. My pleasure. Well, that was a treat for me talking with Drew Gilpin Faust. As you picked up in the interview, I have assigned her work. I have read her work on the 19th century South. I even met her. She, we talked about this before I came on when I was a uh, fellow at the Philadelphia Center, now the McNeil Center at Early American Studies. I uh, met her. I think I shook her hand. Uh, Richard Dunn was the director of that center, and he would kind of parade the fellows around at different University of Pennsylvania events. And I think I met Drew at that point. Didn't expect her to remember that, but I had. If you are interested in a sort of, again, coming of age story, women's history, the 60s, baby boomers, you know, a lot of stuff here about peace and Quakers and, you know, her religious commitments that influenced her activism, Uh, even if you're interested in the role of history and activism, which she uh, mentioned there at the end, I'd encourage you to go out there and get this memoir. I want my daughters to read it. Again, they're growing up in a very, very different time. But there's so much in this memoir about what it was like to be a little girl. My girls read Nancy Drew, for example, Nancy Drew books. And Drew Gilpin Faust talks about the impact that Nancy Drew had on her, as well as Anne Frank, To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, She identifies with the character Scout in the book. Again, so, so much here that uh, we didn't get a chance to cover in the interview. Uh, This makes, again, for a great holiday book for uh, really anyone interested in the experience of people growing up in the 1950s. So again, this has been a privilege talking to Drew Gilpin Faust. We appreciate you as well. Hope you'll think of us during the holiday season. Currentpub.com is growing. We are developing an audience. We are attracting really high quality writers these days. 
But like all little magazines, we can't survive without your help. And this podcast is also part of our efforts at currentpub.com. So if you get the inclination, if you want to help us out, just go onto the site, click that membership button. You can sign up for as little as $5 a month and you can support these kinds of great interviews with people like Drew Gilpin Faust. So as always, thank you so much for joining us and may your way of improvement always lead home. The Way of Improvement podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley Hermeling. Our producer is Casey Lehman out of Nashville, and I, John Fia, am your host. <laughs>